Good morning. Today's scripture is Acts chapter 2, verse 47, or verse 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number, number daily those who are being saved. Thank you, Paul, for uh, reading the scripture for us this morning. Uh, as was mentioned earlier, my name is Bob Irving. I am one of the pastors down at Millington Baptist Church in Basking Ridge. And uh, it is my, uh, my pleasure to be with you here this morning. Uh, Pastor Kevin and I are friends uh, through a mutual friend out in Denver. And so uh, it's been a little while we, since we connected. Um, but uh, again, it's, uh, it's, it's good to be here with you this morning. Um, I am going to be speaking to you from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2. And uh, a few months ago, our uh, church went through a series on the book of Acts that we called Sense, because all of us, as members of the body of Christ, are called to be missionaries in our world for the glory of God. We're all called to be missionaries for the glory of God. Now, with that in mind, I'd like to ask you a question as we begin this morning. Have you ever had something that consumed your life? I mean, it's the last thing you think about before you sleep. It's the first thing you think about when you wake up. Now, depending on your stage of life and your background, this could be any number of things. But personally, I've had several things consume my life. And one that comes to mind back from when I was a, a child is Little League Baseball. Uh, I remember the day, my days of guarding first base, chasing down fly balls in the outfield and knocking line drives to right center field. In fact, I would wait for my dad to come home. And we would go out and take batting practice for hours, which was in addition to the three times a week we got together and practice as a team. And so let me tell you, it wasn't just the kids that were devoted to the team, it was also the parents. Have you ever watched a Little League baseball game and seen uh, parents who were just a bit too into the game? Or maybe you were that parent at some point in time in your life. But Little League baseball was some of my favorite times of life because being on a team with other people allowed me to develop close relationships. Everybody had a spot Everybody had a position, and everybody was devoted to winning the next game. Or at least, if you weren't devoted to winning the game, you were committed to sucking down ice cream at the local ice cream shop down the street when the game was done. You were connected. You felt like you belonged. But maybe it's just me. As I get older, I feel that it's easier to miss that youthful connection and excitement. And so the reason you miss it is because you miss connection with other people that you maybe once had on your team or in your circle of influence. That connection was life-giving, it was true, it was unhindered, and it was real. And if you had it and you don't have it anymore, you want it back. Because I believe true connection happens when there is a common vision, mission, or experience that unites us together. What's more unifying than enjoying some ice cream after a baseball game after all, right? When it's good, we can't get enough of it. In fact, we live in a time when we're supposed to be more connected than ever. In fact, you can now join a Facebook group that's more specific to your personal likes than ever before in history. I think there's an online dating service for just about anybody who's over 18. 
contacting someone's just an instantaneous text message away, and I can talk with somebody face-to-face halfway around the world through Skype or FaceTime. And yet, and I'm not telling you anything you probably don't know, but numerous studies and articles have been written about how we feel more isolated than ever before when, in fact, we're supposed to be more connected. We aren't playing a little league anymore. We're actually in the off-season, and so we feel this tension of the fact that we want connection, but we're afraid of truly being known. And so there's a fear of what people will think of us if they really knew who we are, what we struggle with, and what that little voice inside our heads say when nobody else is looking. We think, well, if somebody knew what was going on, they would reject me. Now, that's not a new phenomenon. Rather, we've actually been spiraling in this direction for many years. Listen to what an article in the Washington Post said about a decade ago. It begins like this. It says, Americans are far more socially isolated today than they were two decades ago. And a sharply growing number of people say they have no one in whom they can confide, according to a comprehensive new evaluation of the decline of social ties in the United States. And then the article finishes this way. It says, says this. This comprehensive new study paints a sobering picture of an increasingly fragmented America where intimate social ties, once seen as an integral part of daily life and associated with a host of psychological and civic benefits, are shrinking or are non-existent. In bad times, far more people appear to suffer alone. Now that sounds kind of depressing, right? I mean, who wants to live like that? And I'd like to think those stats are getting better, but I actually think they're getting worse. And more alarming is that I believe this trend has made its way into our churches, which begs the question, how many people within your church do you feel like you can confide in? Now, sadly, I suspect it's, not, it's very low. I had a, hist- a church history professor back when I was in seminary astutely point out something that really struck me. He said, the church will always look at some level like the culture that it ministers in. Now, that's true for some of the good things as well as some of the challenges of the culture. And just as American people are feeling disconnected, I think people within churches are feeling equally disconnected in the church, which should be the place where we're most connected. Now, I want to commend a book to you this morning that I read a little while ago. It's a book called Befriend by an author that you may not have heard of. His name is Scott Sauls. But the subtext of this book, Befriend, is this. It's create belonging in an age of judgment, isolation, and fear. And I thought, wow, that's, that's where we're often at today as a culture. We've lost or perhaps never understood what it means to truly be friends with people. And we often aren't willing to take the risk of truly being in people's lives because we don't really know what it means to be vulnerable. And so I think some of the chapters in the book speak to some of the greatest taboo subjects. Because in our quest to become more connected, we've actually created more barriers to true relationship. We too often dismiss people because of labels we put on them. And so we want to be connected, but we feel so far away, and we've forgotten what it means to befriend people, even in the church. Bill Hybels once famously said that the local church is the hope of the world. And I've never forgotten that line because I believe it. And every pastor I've ever talked to believes that, that while the church is broken in many ways, it is God's vehicle to bring his kingdom here on earth. Now, I grew up in a small church, but God instilled in me a heart for his people at an early age. 
And the challenge I want to give to us this morning is this. We need to develop a love for the church. That perhaps today you've walked in this sanctuary and you're hoping that this church, or you've been hoping that this church will be what you're looking for because you're longing for connection and yet you feel incredibly isolated and you're desperately hoping to find community within these church walls and a message that speaks to your heart and a place where you feel connected but you've been burned in the past. Your experience with the church has not been what I just described. And so I want to invite us this morning to take a step back and ask a question. What should the church, what is the church supposed to look like? Because that, I think that's at the heart of Acts chapter 2. And so I want, what I want to suggest to you this morning is a bold idea that should challenge every one of us. I would like to suggest to you a fresh vision of what the church could be, not necessarily what we've experienced it to be, a place of radical, countercultural community where people are fully known and where people are truly loved. And I think we could be that. I think we need to model that now more than ever. And so our passage in Acts 2, 42, 42 to 47 speaks about the church as a place of radical community where God is... Uh, using them to manifest his kingdom in this world. They're bound together by this common vision, mission, and experience like no one else before in history. That vision and mission is grounded in a life-transforming experience they had just before this passage where 3,000 people came to know Christ, heard the message of the gospel, were cut to the heart, and surrendered their lives to the lordship of Christ, the true Messiah. And now... God wants to use them to show the world a better way, his way. And so Luke captures a picture of what the church is supposed to look like in this passage, and it's a place of radical community. And so you may be asking the natural question, how do I capture this community in my own life? And I think this passage teaches us three things, and I think there's an outline in your bulletin where you can, you can write them down. It's devotion, it's unity, and it's hospitality. Devotion, unity, and hospitality. And so I want to walk back through that passage and look at those more specifically. The first thing is this. Radical community happens when we devote our lives to others. Look back again at verse 42 and 43. I'm reading from the ESV here. And then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. Now, I want to camp out on that word devoted for just a second, because what does it mean that they devoted themselves? Well, literally, it means that they gave themselves, or they were all in. Now, the church that I pastor has the word Baptist in the title, but one of the things that comes to mind when I hear the word all in is poker. If you're all in, that means all your chips are on the table. You're not holding anything back. And so when it says they gave themselves or they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, it means they were all in. And the truth is this radical community would not have worked if they were not continually devoting themselves or giving themselves to the cause. So again, what does it mean that they were devoted? Well, he mentions four key elements of devotion of the early church. And the first one was this, the apostles' teaching which specifically refers to the apostles' teaching of new converts here. In other words, they were getting solid teaching that moved their hearts. And proper teaching of God's word always points us to an accurate view of God, which binds us together and moves us to live differently. 
And so what did that teaching look like? Well, they talked about Jesus being Israel's Messiah and Lord. They talked about him being the Savior. They talked about the need to repent of sins and place your trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, of having a personal allegiance to him, about the coming of the Holy Spirit who seals our hearts and fills us with his power, and the need to take that message out because it's not just for believers, it's for those that don't believe. And so a good sermon or a Sunday school class or a small group doesn't just give you information when they teach, it moves your hearts to action. And so I know at our church, in all our venues where we teach, we seek to achieve that. I heard Pastor Matt Chandler, who's a pastor down in Texas, say this one time. He said, he said people would come up to me after my sermon, and they would always tell me, oh, I'm, that was, it was so good. And he says, I would, start, I would start to respond and say to people that would say that to me, I'm glad you connected with the teaching, but how will your life be different as a result? And I pray that our teaching would challenge us not just to get information, but to move to live differently. Now, the second thing they mention here is fellowship. The Greek word used for fellowship is the word koinonia, which means a personal and fraternal connection with members of the congregation. Fellowship shows uh, unity of the believers. And so the teaching of the message unified the believers in fellowship, which produced joy. Friends, the church is supposed to be a place where joy happens. And sometimes we come into church and we focus on all the rules we're supposed to follow, but really, the fact is that God has freed us to live as we were made. We're supposed to enjoy being together and and even laugh together. I was at a conference a few years ago and a speaker challenged uh, those of us that were there to think, what if the health of our church was actually gauged by how well we laugh together, by how we encourage one another, by our willingness to walk through life with people? There's a book, another book that uh, my, our ministry team has been reading. It's a book called Growing Young. And one of their key findings to churches that are growing young is that uh, those churches are fueled by a warm community where even though church is messy, it feels like family. People didn't have to have it all together, but they were committed to the church. The third thing they mention is the breaking of bread. And so there's various views on what this means, but I, I think it refers both to meals that were shared by the believers as well as the commemoration of the Lord's Supper, which I see we're going to be doing later in the service today. You see, in that day, the Lord's Supper, the communion meal, would actually follow regular meals. Communion meals were, were, uh, were done to help the community remember the apostles' teaching about Jesus, because the communion table is a reminder of the gospel. The, the last thing they mention here is prayer. Radical community is marked by prayer. Now, often we overlook this marker, but it is the most essential. The community prayed together. They talked to God and experienced his presence together. They shared their hearts. Down where I'm from, we have a pastor's group that gets together once a month, and a few months ago, we went to a a local Korean church, and uh, they were hosting us that day, and what we did was we went around the circle, and we were talking about what God was doing in our churches and how he was moving. And so we all shared, and then we got to our, our host pastor, and he was talking about how his church got together every day. They committed themselves to prayer every day from 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock. And we all looked at them and said, you mean 4 p.m. to 7 p.m., right? He said, no, 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 4 a.m. Every day, 4 a.m. to 7 a.m., they got together and prayed for their church, for the 
movement of God's Spirit for those that were part of the body. Now, that is commitment to prayer. One of the elders at my church said this. He says, you cannot help but care about someone when you pray for them. Because when you pray for them, your hearts are linked. Now, these elements of the early church were radical. But the text tells us the early church devoted or gave themselves to these things. They were all in. And when they did that, they literally changed the world. Now, the text also tells us that awe came upon the believers. In other words, they had respect for what was going on. In fact, I think when they saw all the things that were happening, they fell down on their knees and they worshipped. And there was miracles, signs and wonders that were happening. Now, if you read through the book of Acts, you know there's lots of signs and wonders. And all I'm simply going to say about it in this passage is that they were happening and that they confirmed the message of the apostles. Now, before we move on to our second point, I want to ask a really pointed question. What does devotion look like for us? Because maybe Little League Baseball doesn't resonate with you, but I do think devotion requires sacrifice and risk. It requires us to be all in. Chips on the table. And so what does that look like for you to be all in here at Rivervale Community Church? I would encourage you to look over these four areas, pray about them, rate yourself. Actually, in the back of your outline, I gave you an opportunity to rate yourself and how you think you and the church are doing in those areas. But let me also suggest this. We need to become risk takers. We need to go deeper in our involvement with the local body of believers because what you have, the church needs. The church needs what you have to offer. Maybe you need to grow deeper in your knowledge of the Bible, so join a Sunday school class or a small group. I don't know how you're structured here, but I suspect one of those two things are happening. Get a few people together and form a discipleship group. Maybe you need to have somebody over to your house who you don't know. Or serve. Serve with the children. Serve a VBS I heard about before. Maybe with the teens. Maybe you need to take a big risk and go on a retreat with some middle schoolers. I don't know if you've, if you've done that recently, but... That is certainly a risk if you go on a middle school retreat. Serve on some hospitality teams. Go and serve in the inner city together. Get some people uh, to, go, to go do that. You don't have to do all those things simultaneously, but do something. Go all in. And if we're honest, many of us don't get involved because, as we mentioned earlier, we're afraid of truly being known, which is a byproduct of our culture. Devotion requires us to be known and to give our whole life warts and all. And it's risky because we're afraid and worried about what people will think of us. But here's the great truth. All of us, if you know Christ, are covered by his cross. In Jesus, we all find that we're more sinful than we ever believed, and yet we are more loved than we ever imagined, church. And once we realize that, the church can become a place not of judgment, but of grace. Are you devoted to the church? Because when we're devoted to something, we're not stagnant. That devotion leads us somewhere. And that's the second thing I want to point out to you. Radical community happens when we find unity with others who have the same worldview and experience. Now, in the 1980s, there was a cartoon that I used to watch. And I actually found out recently they've given a, a new name for the generation that I was a part of. I grew up in between the Gen X and the millennial generation, and so now we're apparently Xennials. I was born in 1981. And I used to watch this cartoon, which I thought was the ultimate 
picture of unity. It was a cartoon called Voltron. And uh, if you know anybody who grew up in this day and age, they know what it was. And so th- this robot was a Voltron on this, on this planet who protected it from all these monsters that would come and attack and try to, try to kill people. And uh, every episode happened the same way. Voltron was the combination of a bunch of different lions, the yellow lion and the, the blue lion. They were robot lions that would go out, and they would try to fight these monsters individually. And so the lions would get beat individually, and at the end of every single episode, they would all come together and get unified and form Voltron. And within two seconds after they formed him, the monster would be defeated. And I always ask myself, why don't they just do that at the beginning? I guess it's bad television. Now, if that doesn't resonate with you, let me put it another way. Perhaps you remember images of World War II, and you understand the people who gave their lives during that time frame had to be devoted to the mission. If you wanted to be unified and win the battle and survive, you had to have unity to the mission. And so, friends, the same thing is true in the church community. I think people are longing to be part of something greater than themselves. They want to give their lives for something. And this I know for sure, that no one is attracted to division. When there is strife at work or in your family, when conversations are strident, what do you do? You stay away. People are attracted to unity. And when we are unified, great things happen. Look at what happened to the apostles. Verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. See, the unity of the church was displayed in two primary ways. Number one, there was relational harmony. They had all things in common, which doesn't mean they were gathered always in the same place at the same time. Rather, it's emphasizing their mindset and their relational connectedness. In fact, this was so powerful that it manifested itself in practical ways. There was sacrifice of possessions. Again, that phrase, all things had, they had all things in common, could mean that the believers were engaging in communal or shared living. But it can also mean that people still owned their own property and possessions, but used them for the common good. See, in 245, it seems to indicate that people were selling their possessions, which would make the latter view more preferable. In other words, this wasn't a form of communism. It was more challenging. It called the people in the community to make sacrifices for the sake of helping others. Which brings up another important question for us. How do we help people in need? Now, at my church, we have an encouragement fund and we have a benevolence fund. The encouragement fund is just to encourage folks that are struggling. The benevolence fund is for larger needs. Maybe you have something similar to that here. But we should always be looking for ways to sacrificially help others. We are called to serve the poor and needy. And that's why relational harmony is so important. So that we know their needs and we can help those, help them. And when you give to help others, it promotes unity. Now you may be sitting there saying, Bob, Bob, I, I don't want to go any deeper in unity because there's a lot of people that go to this church that I really don't like. I don't know if that's true or not, but let me offer you a few words of scholar D.A. Carson, and this is what he says. He says, the church is not made up of natural friends. We're a band of natural enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. The church is not made up of natural friends. We are a band of natural 
enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. And to that, I just say, wow, is not that the truth? Friends, that is who we are. And so this is what this looks like. This means we need to take a risk for unity. We need to talk with people who are different than us, somebody who's in a different socioeconomic class, somebody who's part of a different race or a different age. That's what it means to be unified. Because here's the problem that we all have, and I say this to myself included. We typically run to people who make us feel really comfortable, right? And when it happens, we start to create a community around us of people who simply agree with us, of people who look like us, of people who think like us. Now, it's not bad to have friends with people who are like us, but it becomes bad when we start to delegitimize other people who are different than us. And so this is the danger of talking with people who are only like us. We're, we're not good at listening to each other. Or at least we're not good at listening to people who disagree with us. And we need to be better about that. And I say that to myself first. I need to be better. We need to take a risk for the sake of the kingdom. Now, at our church, we support a number of missionaries. And back when I was preparing this message, I had an opportunity to go visit a guy named Keith Wilkes, who's one of our missionaries at World Impact in Newark. And we were having a wonderful conversation about the challenges that face our nation, our cities, and our churches. And here's some good words he shared with me. He says, we need the church to show us a better way. And then he went on and he said, if the church would be the church, the problems of our nation would be solved. The church has the opportunity to show our world a better way, to show people how to live in the kingdom of God and what it should look like. And that's what Acts 2 is all about. And then he looked me in the eye and he said this, what we need is a heart transplant. What we need as a church is a heart transplant. And I thought, isn't that true? Because if you and I have been transformed by the power of the gospel, our hearts have been transplanted. But we still need the Spirit to come in and work on us every day so that we would live differently. We need people to look at us and say, those people at Rivervale Community Church are a little crazy. You're a little crazy, but they're radical. And here's the truth. Nowhere but the church can this be possible. Our radical community is based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And because of him, we can show the world something different. He can take a person who you never would friend on Facebook and make them part of your family. Because of that, you can find joy being with somebody you never would have spent time with. And that's our last point. Radical community is so attractive, we want others to be part of it. And that's hospitality. That's hospitality. Now, I went to seminary a number of years ago when Apple Computers was making their comeback and asserting their dominance in the world of technology. My friends, a few of my other friends got caught up in this. And so I'll admit, we were caught up in the wave. Now, I don't want to separate the room into Mac and PC, but I assume there's some. How many of you like Macs? Okay. Some of you like PCs? Okay. Uh, don't hate the other person. Um, but what we realize as our friendship in the seminar, we realize is that even if we have different computer preferences, we can be unified. Does anyone remember those commercials where the one guy played the Mac and the other guy played the PC, right? It made you want to buy the Apple product because it was so cool. 
And we bought into that for a while, and we started to realize that we were better evangelists for Apple than we were for Jesus. And we started to think, huh, don't, don't we have the good news? Shouldn't we be as excited about Jesus as we are about the latest tech product or sports team? We realize that needs to change. See, when radical community takes place, it becomes the best apologetic for the gospel we could ever have because the community starts to engage in hospitality. It invites people to come in and be part of the party. Listen to what it says, verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Do you see what was happening? A movement was starting day by day. The people were going to the temple, praising God, remembering Jesus, and doing life together. And there was joy and generosity and praise of God. In fact, even the people outside were looking at the people inside with favor. They could tell something was different. In fact, one commentator puts it this way. He says, the fellowship practice in the private homes of believers had missionary consequences. The meetings of the believers in the temple and in their homes were so attractive that unbelievers started to attend. In other words, people were coming to know Jesus through face-to-face community, not simply through the preaching of the Word. Now, a guy named Rodney Stark wrote an important book called The Rise of Christianity, where he details many aspects of why Christianity came to prominence in the Roman Empire He particularly argues that Christianity spread as an urban movement because that's where the missionary journeys later in Acts went to, and that's where most of the people were. And so Acts 2 takes place in Jerusalem, and while Jerusalem was abandoned in AD 70 due to some attacks, it was estimated at this time there could have been up to 600,000 people living there. And so here's how he describes the living conditions in the empire. He says the cities of the Roman Empire were usually historic fortresses in a really small area. And so oftentimes there was 75,000 people living in one square mile, as was the case in Antioch, where the church sent missionary journeys out from. Now just to put that in perspective, Manhattan, the major metropolis we have just to our east, has only 37 people per square acre. I mean, people literally in the Roman Empire were living on top of one another. That's how densely populated it was. Streets were so narrow that you could talk to somebody through your window and, and uh, uh, across the street. Sanitation and hygiene were so awful. I mean, there was no soap in the Roman Empire. Given their technological capabilities, people were filthy. Furthermore, there was limited water and animals living in the streets, which many people used as their communal latrines. uh, On the street, there was mud, there was open sewers, there was manure, there was crowds of people. Sometimes they would even leave human corpses and push them just to the side of the street and abandon them. And so needless to say, the stench of the cities in the Roman Empire was overpowering for many miles. Even the wealthy were not immune to this. Now, a couple years ago, I went on a uh, middle school retreat. And uh, when I go on middle school retreats, I typically would... um, be in the house with the middle school boys. And this particular retreat, the last time I went on there, I I went into one of the boys' rooms, and I have to tell you, I have never smelled something quite so objectionable. It was pretty terrible. If you have a middle school boy, you 
know what I'm talking about. But not, that didn't even compare to what the early church was experiencing. And yet, hospitality was their calling card. When people were sick, everyone else ran away. But the Christians ran to help those who were in need and gave themselves to nursing people back to health. The church left a mark even amongst those who were hostile to them. Would you be hospitable to somebody even if they were sick and if they smelled? Or do we enjoy our Purell and penicillin just a bit too much? And when you hear what was happening in the early church, it makes our excuses for not having people over to our homes feel a bit lame. I'm not good with new people. My house isn't clean enough. I'm not a good cook. You see, the early church met no matter what. And we would do well to remember that the key to hospitality is not performance, but it's open-hearted friendship and welcome. See, friends, radical community looks beyond smells. It looks beyond sickness. It looks beyond social structures to the heart of people who need to be loved, dignified, and accepted for the sake of the gospel. This is what our community is based on. And this is what caused others to find favor with the church. And I wonder if we can make such a difference even in our day and age, even in the American empire that we live in. By the grace of God, I think we can. And so I'll say it again, friends. We need to take a risk for community. Invite someone over. Encourage someone. I guarantee you that everyone in this room needs two things. Number one, they need a meal. And you're thinking about that right now because it's getting close to lunchtime. And number two, you need encouragement. And I guarantee you, everyone in this room has had a hard day at some point in time. They've been discouraged at one point. And what they need is a listening ear and an encouraging word. And that goes to your friends, your coworkers, and your family members who are not here and who may not even be Christians. All of us have felt the effect of the fall, which has brought discouragement and pain into our lives. And so don't you see, friends, this is the reason to be part of the radical community of the church. In fact, I would argue that when you are not part of a community, you are robbed of the opportunity to be encouraged and to be an encourager. Christianity rose in the Roman Empire because of person-to-person influence. In fact, Christians were the best neighbors they could possibly be. Their apologetic was their hospitality because they welcomed the people nobody else welcomed. They helped the people nobody else helped, and they gave dignity to the people everyone else marginalized. Rodney Stark puts it this way. He says, Christianity grew because it constituted an intense community. The primary means of its growth was through the unified and motivated efforts of the growing number of Christian believers who invited their friends, their relatives, and their neighbors to share the good news. They invited them into the truth. And life was better in the empire because of the Christians. The sick were healed. The outcasts were welcomed as friends. And I think we can do this again. We can show people that there is a better way. And so let's take a risk and become people of hospitality. Let's bring the kingdom to earth and treat people with dignity, encourage them, and meet their needs. And when we do that, we answer the question of what is the church supposed to look like? Because the church 
should be a radical community marked by devotion, by unity, and by hospitality. Devotion, unity, and hospitality. And when the church did this in the first century, they literally changed the world. Do we want to be like that church? Well, let me put it another way. What kind of family do you want to be a part of? What kind of family do you want to be? Do you want to be a dysfunctional family where you yell at each other all the time and get defensive? Where you never spend any time together or when you do, you're putting each other down? When you never have a meal together, in fact, you'd rather have a meal at somebody else's house? Where you only interact when you want something from the other person because everybody in your family is selfish? And you certainly never share what is truly on your heart. In other words, it's not really much of a family at all. You're simply roommates trying to stay out of each other's ways. And many people live like this. But maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's a healthy family that we could be a part of, where we are practicing what I've heard said, we-ness rather than I-ness. Where, where we are people who are teachable and will listen to each other and receive correction. Where we engage in fellowship and enjoy spending time together. Where we eat meals together and laugh. Or are we so serious that we forget to laugh? Where we break bread together and invite other people into our homes for meals and really spend time together with those people. Where we help others as a family. Where we encourage people. Friends, the church needs to be a place that breathes life, not judgment, into people's lives. And where we pray together. Do we pray together and share what's in our hearts as a church, as a family? What kind of family do you want to be a part of? What kind of church do you want to be? Because here's the truth. Healthy things grow. And if we are exhibiting the traits of a healthy church family, we will grow. To be a radical community as a church, that we can't just be about one of these elements, we have to be about all of these elements. We can't fall into the danger of thinking other people or other churches do those things better. We need to accept the challenge that God has given to us. And so as we close today, I want to offer you a challenge to grow in community. And here's my challenge this week. Talk with someone who is different than you today or this week. In fact, write that person's name down on your outline. And I want you to talk with them before next week. And I want you to simply hear their story. Don't go in with an agenda. Just say, I want to hear from you and what's going on in your life. And I want to offer you the challenge of praying for that person. Maybe it's somebody in their workplace or in your home. It could be somebody who's younger than you or somebody who's much older than you. It could be somebody of a different race or a different socioeconomic class. Just talk to them. Listen, because as we said at the beginning of this message, we live in an age of isolation and fear, and we desperately need a better way, church. We need the church to be a radically warm community that invites people to something better. Now, you may be saying, Bob, oh my goodness, the church is full of Christians. We can't do this. It's full of people, and you're right. But here's the good news that Jesus did it for us. And through him, we can live radically because he was radical. 
Don't you see that Jesus gave himself? He was all in when he went to the cross out of devotion to the Father. That Jesus, before he went to the cross, prayed for the unity of his followers and offered us unity because his work at the cross levels the playing field. And he invites us to be part of the family because his sacrifice is the greatest act of hospitality in the history of the world. Jesus Christ was the ultimate display of devotion, of unity, and hospitality, and he has now given us the power of the Holy Spirit to go and do the same. Because of Jesus, the church can truly be the church. And just imagine if we really followed that example. Just imagine if we became a place of radical community marked by those three things, what would happen? The world would change. This is as Rodney Stark says in The Rise of Christianity, people who belonged nowhere were drawn to a community and a cause because of the early Christians. Women were offered dignity when they had none. The sick were cared for when everybody else walked by, and the Roman Empire would never be the same. And if we offer a picture of what the church is actually supposed to be, our local community, our state, and our nation will never be the same. But friends, it requires devotion. We need to be all in. And I have to be honest with you. I've given my life to the church. And I know anybody who is a pastor would say the same thing. I've given my life because I believe in the mission. I believe in what God has called us to do. And I believe that when we are unified in the gospel, nothing, nothing, nothing can change, can stop us. I believe that we can show the world a hospitality it has never known. And I believe that the world could change for the glory of God. Do you believe that today? Church, let's show the world what the church is supposed to be like. And remember our unity in Jesus as we come to the table. Let me pray for you. Father God, we come before you today. And Father, we admit our weakness. Father, we recognize our sinful tendencies, Lord God, to run to things other than you. But Lord Jesus, you are our Lord and our Savior. I pray today that you would capture our hearts. Father, that we would go all in in our devotion for you. Father, that we would recognize the unity that we have through the cross and your sacrifice, Lord. And may we be people of hospitality who invite others to be part of the kingdom as you welcomed us, Lord, when we were running so far away that you even sought us, that you chased after us, that you rescued us. Father God, break our hearts today, humble us, and may you receive the glory for all that happens here. And we pray that in the powerful and the precious and the unmatched name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.